Well, most weeks when we wrap up service, what do I say? Nice and loud. Get out. <laughs> we finish the benediction and have a great week. It's intended to conclude our time together on a positive note, but some weeks aren't great. Some weeks are brutal. Sometimes we leave Sunday service only to walk into a very difficult week, and some, some of it we know is coming. Some of it we can see, and other times we can't see it coming, and it just hits us. And that was this past week for me. So you can just take that outline from, that was printed on the bullet and get rid of it. <laughs> you won't have any blanks to fill in today. So I get hit with this on both fronts, really. One, one thing that I've seen coming for about a year now is that today, after service and after lunch, I load up the van with my oldest daughter, move her back to Mission so she can go to college. She's moving out. Wow. I knew that was coming. Been living in denial about the emotional side of that for a while now. <clears throat> and then last Sunday, I love driving up to North Fork. Hated it last week. Usually when we'd come into town, even as a kid, we'd come into town and we'd cross that bridge, you know, and then there's that house because we come from, we came from the east side, we grew up in Elkford. There's that cool house with like the turret thing on top and that would be the sign, we're almost there. We're almost at Auntie and Uncle's. And then we'd turn off the Donaldson onto the North Fork and as you kind of snake around those corners and then you see their house and that was like, it was always like coming home for me in a lot of ways. It's a second home. And then last Sunday, getting the call at about 12.30 and knowing that Uncle Tim had passed away, sometimes the week isn't great. Grief and loss come into our lives in many forms, and this morning, while the pain of loss of a loved one may be foremost in our hearts and minds, everything I'm going to say this morning applies to any loss you may be facing or have faced, loss of a job, stability, community, family relationships. There's been a lot of losses over the past two years to one degree or another. People have moved, people have left our church for various reasons. There's tensions in relationships, there's marriages that aren't doing well, there's parent and child relationships that are tense and disconnected. Really, anything that you've experienced as a loss that has left you with a hole in your heart, questions in your mind, and tears in your eyes. 
as Wesley stated in The Princess Bride, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you different is selling something. <clears throat> Western culture tends to dismiss pain, avoid grief. There's the pressure, get over it, move on, recover, get back to normal as soon as possible. We're not invited to sit with our grief and immerse ourselves in our pain, and we certainly don't think it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. As I leaf through a bunch of books on my shelf in relationship to spiritual formation and growth, it's amazing that not many of them include a chapter on grief and pain. That's changing, but it's not been the norm. If the work of God in our lives is to conform us to the image of his Son, we might want to remember Isaiah 53.3, that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We may want to remember that he wept bitterly at Lazarus' grave. Perhaps our tendency to avoid sorrow and grief runs counter to God's work to shape us, to reflect Christ. Pain and sorrow and grief are not indicators of sin or weakness of faith. Jesus experienced and expressed pain and sorrow and grief. We have no record of it, but the hints along the way of who Jesus' family were during his ministry indicate that at some point Joseph died and Jesus knows what it's like to lose a dad and a cousin, aunts and uncles. Given infant mortality, I wonder how many of his brothers and sisters. Again, that's all guessing. We'll have to ask Uncle Tim when we get there. In the Gospels, we see Jesus grieving at Lazarus' grave. He weeps over Jerusalem, and then he is absolutely racked with grief and stress in the Garden of Gethsemane. The paintings mislead us. I looked up some paintings of the Garden of Gethsemane, and the most famous ones are all of Jesus with a glow, praying to the Father. I think the Gospels give us a different picture of a man racked with pain so badly that his blood vessels were bursting probably laying in the fetal position, racked with pain. To be conformed to the image of Christ is to be a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Otherwise, our discipleship will be shallow. Emotionally healthy discipleship, Peter Scazzaro says, losses that are not grieved accumulate in the soul like heavy stones that weigh us down. When we fail to attend to them, they prevent us from living freely and honestly with God and others. However it comes, loss is loss. No one escapes suffering and pain in this life. Whether your losses are current or distant past, they are still there and they still hurt. They still affect your life to some degree. Because loss never leaves us the same. It always changes us. But too often after the memorial service or the move or all the legal papers are signed to end the relationship or the dream has died, we move on quickly and we don't recognize the change that happens. 
two ways that we mishandle our grief. First is that we believe we're in control of what happens in our lives. But loss reminds us we're not in control. Western culture has taught us that progress in life is up and to the right. right? The graph's got to go this way. That's what it's all about. If we're successful in life, it means profits are up, investments are up, fulfillment is up, relationships are doing good. And we're doing better this year than last year. That's how our world is wired, and it's what we expect. And often that thinking affects our faith. Because when it doesn't go well, we think there's something wrong. Our society has trained us to pay attention to success, but not to loss and pain. So what has happened over time is we built all sorts of ways into our lives to avoid pain. Is it any wonder we have more prescribed medications than any other time in history for depression, anxiety, and other disorders? Is it any wonder that addictions from everything, from drugs, alcohol, sex, entertainment, work, religion, are at an all-time high doing so much damage in people's lives and relationships? Life doesn't work. Pain enters, and we want an escape now. So we grab something, anything, to numb the pain and put us back in the driver's seat so we can be in control of our lives. I think that most of the problems we have in our society stem from a refusal to grieve and the loss of the art of lament. I think that's why some people don't like the Bible, especially the Psalms. Most of them are laments, songs of complaint, songs born out of pain and struggle. We have a whole book called Lamentations, and there's Job, and there's Ecclesiastes. I mean, if you really look at what's called wisdom literature carefully, you find that wisdom comes, yes, from the fear of the Lord, but it also comes through grief and loss, more than anything else. And these books are here to train us in the art of real pain and the hurt of the world. And during it all, find that God's, God walks with us through the darkest days. Loss reminds us we're not in control. Second, we view loss as an interruption. What do we instinctively say or expect when we encounter loss? Well, it'll take time, but I'll get over it. It'll pass. We view loss and grief as a problem to be solved rather than a companion to be embraced. You know what, I, I really appreciate people who continue to post about the loved ones they've lost when life moments and certain markers come up that remind them of their loved one, even if it's just a birthday. You know, until we walk that road ourselves, we can be oblivious to the grief that surrounds the life of others that's with them as a constant companion. <clears throat> we sometimes forget after the memorial service is over and the meal supply time runs out after two to four weeks that there's a husband, a wife, children, parents that are living in a house that will never be the same. And for those that have lost a loved one, there's no going back to normal ever. Loss is not an interruption it is an irreversible change. 
So we know we need to grieve. We need to embrace the realities in which we are living. So where do we start? And why is it so necessary to spiritual growth and maturity? Let's first ground our experience today in Scripture. Three key passages. I don't have them up on the screen. I just want you to hear them today. If you want, write these down and then take these with you and meditate on them this week. Three passages. First is John 11, 17 to 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And over to Romans 8. An amazing chapter of celebration, and yet there is pain in the midst of it too. Romans 8, 18 to 30. <clears throat> After saying, there's no condemnation in Christ, that you've been set free from the law of sin and death, that you are co-heirs with Christ, Paul says this, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. We grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
verses 7 to 18. But we have this treasure, the glory of God in the face of Christ, in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that the grace, so as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I'm going to tie each of these to a main point, each of these passages, and these all come from this uh, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book by Pete Scazzaro and, and some from another book called The Deeply Formed Life by Rich Villados. The first thing, the first point this morning is pay attention to the pain. Pay attention to your pain. John 11. Mary's in pain, Martha's in pain, and Jesus is in pain. Martha needs a theological discussion with Jesus. Mary needs Jesus to just be with her, and neither is wrong. Jesus meets them with what they need in their grief. Jesus joins in the questioning and the weeping, and Jesus pays attention to the pain of Martha and Mary, and even to his own. Often we're too busy to pay attention to our inner life, but times of loss and change are reminders that we are often living faster than our hearts can manage. And we need to intentionally slow down and ask ourselves some questions. We need to pay attention to what our body, soul, and spirit might be trying to tell us. Because God has wired us with all sorts of physical and emotional responses that we often ignore to our peril. Kind of like the check engine light on your car. Ignore it long enough and you're going to be on the side of the road with a blown engine. Ignore that in your life long enough and you'll end up on the side of the road with a blown out heart and spirit. Four questions you should ask yourself, perhaps journal, yes, pen in hand. Take what time to ponder, to pray, to evaluate. Let these help you to look beyond the surface and take stock of what's really going on in your inner world. Ask this question, what am I mad about? Second, what am I sad about? What am I anxious about? Third, 
and what am I glad about? Four simple questions. Where am I mad? Where am I sad? What's filling me with anxiety? And what am I really glad about? If you take the time to wrestle with those four questions prayerfully and honestly and don't settle for surface answers but evaluate each and every answer, ask why over and over in the process. I'm, 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 I'm upset about this, but, but why am I upset about this? What's behind that? What's, you know, the first question, what am I mad about? Anger is just to cover up emotion for a deeper hurt. Always. Get to the root. Ask yourself why over and over in all of those things. And you might discover that you come to a new understanding of the real emotional climate in your heart and life. And then invite God to speak his word into it. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. See if there's any way where I'm just living in denial and fear of what I'm really feeling. You know, sometimes I think we don't grieve because we're so afraid of the actual emotion. Again, we're afraid of losing control. But grief invites us to lose control. Here's the thing. God already knows exactly what's going on in your heart better than you do. And he wants to meet you in the places where you are needing his grace and his healing, but he doesn't work apart from your awareness and need. If you are constantly busy and distracted and denying the reality of your pain, you will miss out on the deep love and healing power that Jesus longs to bring into your life. Don't run from your pain. Pay attention to it. And embrace it. So I was thinking about this, I thought over the Gospels, and I think that every single miracle of Jesus started with a conversation about admitting needs and dealing with the pain. I wonder if our shallow experience of God's power is simply related to our shallow experience of our own pain. Because we keep denying it, or medicating it, numbing it, or denying it. Pay attention to your pain. John chapter 11 invites us into that. Romans 8 invites us to wait in the confusing in-between. It's our second point. Anchor this to Romans 8. Waiting in the confusing in-between. When, when you're experiencing pain, how quickly do you want it gone? I mean, we rush to the hospital. Medicate me, please. Make the pain stop. Pain relief and pain management are a big business. It's huge. Imagine a world without aspirin, Tylenol, codeine, or stronger stuff. You know, there's places in the world they don't have that. <laughs> I wonder if they're more in touch with their reality than we are. Medical advancement has made pain something we believe we can manage and control. And we think it's the way we should handle all pain, even our emotional pain. Waiting for relief is like an unconscionable evil. If we hurt, we want relief now. But there's this in-between space 
when we inhabit, that we are invited to inhabit as we experience loss and grief, where everything is fuzzy and it's confusing and we don't know which way is up and our lives become disoriented and what we thought we would be doing this week or this month or this year suddenly becomes impossible or unimaginable. But this is normal. Grief Share, session one, seeks to normalize confusion and disorientation when you're experiencing loss because that's the reality of grief and loss. You get thrown into a season of not knowing what to do or what might come next and you find yourself in limbo in so many ways. Pete Scazzaro puts it this way, what makes waiting so difficult is that we're not sure where God is or what he's doing or when, he, when this waiting is gonna end, if ever. And we are helplessly thrust on him in total dependence. We can't see the future and there is no way back to the past where we have a sense of stability and order. A man named Thomas Chisholm went through a variety of disappointments in life. He was born in a simple log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky in 1866. He lacked a high school education or college training, so he became a school teacher at the age of 16. A very different world. I was like, I read that and I went, what? What kind of sentence is that? And then he went on to enter the newspaper business. The following years found him training and being ordained as a pastor, but then poor health forced him to leave ministry. And after a time of recuperation, he moved to New Jersey to work as an insurance agent. Wow. But he was a prolific writer of poetry and sent a collection of his poems in 1923 to a good friend, William Runyon, a musician associated with Chicago's Moody Bible Institute, who also worked for him publishing company. And while on a trip to Baldwin, Kansas, Runyon was leafing through all these poems that Chisholm sent him, and it was immediately taken by the depth and meaning of, and the lyrical beauty of the words found in the poem, Great is thy faithfulness. Years later, Runyon recalled, this particular poem held such an appeal that I prayed most earnestly that my tune might carry over its message in a worthy way. And out of that simple prayer, Runyon's melody took shape and the completed hymn was published by Runyon the same year, 1923. But it wasn't until Billy Graham began using the song in his crusades in 1954 that the hymn became popular outside of Moody Bible Institute. It's now obviously a global favorite. Waiting. Dealing with the disappointments in life. making adjustments, not knowing what God's up to. It's all part of the process. The season you are in right now might be horribly painful, confusing and disorienting, or just plain annoying, which is why point one, paying attention to your pain is so critical. Pay attention to your pain and then wait in the confusing in between. It's the confusing in-between times where God uproots our self-will, strips us of layers of our false self, and frees us from unhealthy attachments. The third thing out of 2 Corinthians 4 is to allow the old to birth the new. And for some, this is too soon, but this is the process. 
The confusing in between time is part of our journey of grief. God is still there. God is still working. Something is happening even when you can't see it or feel it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. What's on the other side of the valley? You don't know until you get there. But you've got to go through it. In the psalm itself, it's a banquet in the presence of enemies. But as I said earlier, the worst case scenario for a follower of Jesus is the resurrection. New creation complete. It's an amazing truth that we all need to embrace in the midst of our grief. Again from Schizero's book, the central truth of Christianity is that Jesus died a real death on the cross and rose from the dead. He is risen. This is what enables us to affirm that our losses and endings are gateways to new beginnings, even when we can't see anything good that could possibly emerge from them. Our losses are real, but so is the resurrection our living God brings from our losses. And since I can't really improve on the next bit, I'm going to just read it straight. I'd encourage everyone to pick one of these up. You're going to hear a lot about it in the next five years anyway. Emotionally healthy discipleship. What happens in the in-between? What is God up to? The following are five treasures of resurrection that I have experienced in my own life and have seen become reality in the lives of countless others who have bravely lamented God's way. First, God offers us revelation of himself. Embracing our losses enlarges our hearts to how incomprehensible, untraceable, infinite, transcendent, and inexhaustible and perfect God is. That's why Meister Eckhart said when some people quit God, they're actually getting closer to the real God, and this is a good thing. The God they are quitting is not the God whom we encounter in Scripture. God's ways are much higher, more expansive than we can imagine. And like Jeremiah, in the midst of disaster of Jerusalem's destruction at the hand of the Babylonians, we discover the depths of his love and the faithfulness that is new every morning, Lamentations 3.22. We realize that we will never stop progressing or growing in the exhaustible life, inexhaustible life of God. So first, God offers a revelation of himself. Second, God makes us softer and more compassionate. Sadness softens our defenses, and people experience us, experience us as safer containers of Jesus. Author and theologian Henry Nouwen rightly says that the degree to which we grieve our own losses is in direct proportion to the depth and quality of compassion we can offer to others. There is no compassion without many tears. To become like the Father whose only authority is compassion, I have to shed countless tears and so prepare my heart to receive anyone, whatever their journey has been, and forgive them from the heart. Absorbing our own pain, we are able to enter the pain of others. We become mature lovers and true mothers and fathers in the faith. Thirdly, God gives us a greater revelation of ourselves. 
Grieving reveals to us the extent to which self-will remains deeply embedded in us. I never understood, at least at a heart level, Jesus lying on the ground in Gethsemane, struggling and overwhelmed by the will of the Father until I experienced my own grief. Loss cuts something out of us, much as a gardener cuts back a plant for greater fruit. God does something in us through the fire of sorrow that enlarges our capacity to wait and surrender to his will. This breaking detaches and empties us so he can fill us with his life. And then out of union with Jesus, he can fill us with a new and extraordinary capacity for fruitfulness. Fourth, God makes us more of our true self in Christ. Sorrow has a remarkable power to wear away the masks we present to the world. Accomplishments or gifts with which we over-identify give way and disintegrate. We are more liberated from having to impress others and freed from our adolescent avoidance of pain. We find ourselves able to follow God's plan with a new freedom and now can rid ourselves of the unimportant things in life that others so desperately want. Something truer, Christ in us and through us, slowly emerges. We acknowledge our brokenness and vulnerabilities rather than covering them over. And we break free from the illusion that there is something richer and more beautiful than the gift of loving God and being loved by him. God, fifthly, makes us more truly alive to our astonishing world. We enjoy a new, vivid appreciation of the sacredness of all life, the changing seasons, the wind, the falling of the leaves, the holidays, the inner beauty of people. Our hearts are expanded to experience depths of life beneath the surface, and we find ourselves marveling at the wonder and the miracle of life more often. We are not the same people after this final phase of the grieving process. We finally realize that just as the risen Jesus showed his wounds to the disciples following his resurrection, he sends us into the world to show our wounds as well. Take a deep breath. One more closer to eternity. You remember the first breath when your children were born? A timer started at that very moment. A countdown. Every breath leads us one last to my last. I read that in a number of places this last week. Every breath is a gift. Everyone is, every moment is one closer to eternity. The last paragraph that I read was interesting, thought-provoking. Our journeys of grief and loss may, of what they may be doing in us, the implications for the mission that God has prepared for us. Imagine that your pain and your loss has a redemptive purpose for others. As the God of all comfort comforts us in our weakness and our sorrow, so he is equipping us to comfort others. The disciples experienced a bewildering loss in a time of grief and a time of confusion. Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. All of their hopes and their dreams were dashed 
and then Jesus rose from the dead, and they didn't see that coming at all. And then after 40 days, he left them. And the whole concept of who they were, what they were about, their national, racial, family identity, their theology, their worldview, everything was shattered and upended and turned inside out. Nothing made sense to them. And even after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in them, leading and guiding them, even after the good news of Jesus began to change the hearts of thousands, not only Jews, but Gentiles as well, they still struggled to wrap their minds around what God was doing. Grief and loss and hardship in life is not a sign of God's abandonment or absence of care. We know this. Romans chapter 8 tells us that nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. And the first thing that Paul mentions in that list is death. We cannot avoid grief and loss in this, in this life. We are foolish to try. Wisdom comes when we embrace our pain and trust that God in the waiting and the in-between and look for what he's doing in us and for us and through us. Grief and loss force us to intentionally slow down and pay attention to our hearts and what God is doing there. We can't rush through it. That will only make it worse. We have to respond to grief's invitation to challenge our priorities and change our passions. Maybe you're not experiencing a significant loss at the moment, but I would encourage you then to sit down and start at the beginning of your life. Map out the losses along the way. What have you bottled up or what have you ignored? What have you never really grieved? Maybe there was a dream or a career, a school. You had goals, relationships. Take the time. And take the time to sit with psalms like Psalm 42 and 43, really one psalm. Take the time to read Psalm 77. I spoke on this last September after Deb Spa and Al Blahut passed away. You can find that. We were online at the time. Or Psalm 88. I spoke on that one the very first Sunday I was here, the day after Alec Foyt's funeral. Allow these deep cries of lament and grief in Scripture to guide you on your journey into God's presence. Actually, I should say, allow them to guide you on your grief journey in God's presence, not into God's presence, because God is there with you through it all. We don't go through grief and then enter his presence. It's really quite hard to separate yourself from an omnipresent God, so don't bother trying. See, God inspired the authors of Scripture to write laments more than praises. Two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Perhaps we should take a hint. And then in whatever loss you are facing, compose your own lament. Express your heart to God, your frustration, your sadness, your anger, your longing, and see where it takes you and see where God meets you. Let's pray. Lord, this morning there's different griefs represented in this room, and some are immediate and some are distant. Some we've ignored, some we've bottled up. 
some we've thought are gone, but they're really still controlling our lives. And so, Lord, teach us to grieve as you modeled for your disciples throughout your life. Man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and we are being transformed into your image. And so, Lord, teach us to grieve deeply as Jesus. May our hearts break for the brokenness of this world, for the marring of your good creation. And may we long as with all creation groaning in eager expectation for the renewal to come. Because even as Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Your mercies are new every morning. Writing from Babylon, writing from the ruins of Jerusalem, writing from a devastation, and the question of what you are doing in the midst of it all. He could say, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father. Let's stand and let's sing that this morning. We'll just, uh, it'll just be a cappella this morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O oh.
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Lord, we go this week, and we go to experience who you are in our joys and in our griefs, in our laughter and in our tears. Lord, thank you that you walk with us every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well... Have a great week, because God is great.